0: Welcome to Horses for Future. This is a podcast in which we look at what horse people can do to help with the climate change crisis. My name is Alexandra Curland. I'm the author of The Click That Teaches, a step-by-step guide in pictures and many other books and DVDs on clicker training. But we are not going to be talking, at least not directly, about training. We're going to be talking about what each of us can do to help with the climate change. And today I'm joined by Sarah Owings. And I'm just delighted, Sarah, that you're doing this with me. Sarah, you're not a horse person, I want to say currently. You have horses in your background. But the reason we're chatting today is because you've bought some property. And I should add just that, yes, you are the Sarah Owings. You are, uh, for those who, who are familiar with clicker training, and have been to the Clicker Expo, that you are a canine clicker training specialist, and you're one of the faculty of the Clicker Expo. So we've been chatting for quite a few years now, mostly about training, but more recently a little bit about the land that you've recently purchased. So let's jump right in. This is your first spring on the land, but tell us a little bit how much? How much land do you have? What's your climate? You're in California.
1: Mm-hmm. We're uh, we're in Northern California. Okay. So Petaluma, which is about a forty-five minute drive north of San Francisco. Okay. But I have found that the climate in San Francisco is
0: completely different than here. Just okay. Because like I've been briefly in the San Francisco area, so I know a little bit of that area. So I don't know Northern California at all, really. Are you in the fire zone?
1: Yes, we are definitely in the fire zone. This uh, we're in the Petaluma Valley, so there are mountains on either side of us. Okay, and there's we have mountains to the front of us and a mountains behind us. Very pretty. And we're we're in the valley, but we're kind of up quite a bit, so our view is the whole Petaluma Valley. And the fires have come have have come very close to uh, in the west. So. Um, uh, Santa Rosa I don't you probably they, Santa Rosa was in the news all last okay. year um so Santa Rosa is about a t- 15 minute drive up the freeway from here okay and then last year last summer we had fires directly over the mountains behind us wow. um, and we were on ev- evacuation watch in fact we because we were new to the neighborhood we were watching all our neighbors to see who was getting their large animals Out. ready out. Yeah. Um, and we, nobody evacuated their large animals, but everyone had their trailers ready. Um, and that kind of gave us a little gauge for how the locals were responding to all yes. the fire warnings. Yes. But the, the, the we didn't see any fire, but the, the skies were black, you know, and it was scary.
0: Yeah. So you're in the fire zone. And that means that any decisions that you make about what to do with your property are going to very much be dictated by the fact that you're in the fire zone. So you're not going to be planting highly combustible trees right next to your house, that sort of thing.
1: Right. Unfortunately, there are already a uh, uh, highly combustible trees. There is a gigantic stand of eucalyptus directly up the road from us. Uh, it belongs to the neighbors, but it looks like it's on our land. It's quite close to us and they are beautiful they are old huge eucalyptus grove and i'm not native i just learned some very interesting history about why there are so many eucalyptus here in this area there are tons and they are not native and we learned that a long time ago i'm I'm not sure what time frame but right when they were building railroads through this part of the world they wanted quick lumber so these trees grow very, very fast. And they thought if they planted eucalyptus, they could harvest the lumber for railroad ties quickly. Ended up with a, a, a massive invasive species in this area. Um, but it's they've been here so long that they're actually part of the character of this area. So there are even people that don't want them cut down. They, they wanna defend the eucalyptus. You yeah, know, yeah. And, and but they course. are highly flammable, yes. highly flammable. Yeah. Um, lots of oils in the bark. And so, yeah, it's risky. We, when we bought the property, we, one of the big fears we had was okay, <laughs> we're basically living in a house next to a giant fire chimneys, you know, yeah. just yeah. go up. But the flip side is they are magnificent trees. It feels like we have a forest um, right next to our to our house. And the rest of our land is all pasture land and so not a lot of trees. Okay. And so it's in the summer, it's quite hot and we're up on a hill. So we get wind and sun and it, there's a lot of, ex, you know, exposure. Mm-hmm. And these eucalyptus actually do a lot of interesting things for our property. For example, they provide a huge windbreak yes. because we, we get intense West winds, sometimes up to 35 miles an hour at times. And, but up, up by the barn, which is where these eucalyptus are, it's like, a, again, a little microclimate that is cooler. It is, um, the plants grow better up there because the trees shelter them. Okay. Um, and although I'm learning from, uh, Doug Tallamy, which I know we'll get into that, although eucalyptus do not support a lot of insects that the birds can eat. Right. these these trees are providing a massive habitat space because I've been watching them and the nesting and the there's about there hundreds of different species of birds that live in these trees um, huge flocks come and land there every evening and they sing to us um oh, lovely well not to us it feels like to us yes. but to themselves right, right, right. and singing. um it's it's quite It's quite spectacular. Uh, Hawks are nesting up in there. And even our neighbors, peacocks, come up the hill and roost up there at night. So these trees are providing quite a lot. But I know that on their own, they would not provide enough food. But they do provide habitat. They do provide habitat.
0: So we can't, it's an interesting point that we can't paint with the same brush, a broad brush, the effect of all non-natives. Right. You know, you have to view each each species in the in the environment in which it's growing in the context in which it's growing and particularly if if native trees are no longer there i mean would there have been native trees i don't know but if well native- luckily there are luckily okay. there are um, but if they've been ta- if they've been cut out then at least these non-native trees are serving some of the ecological function that the native trees would have served just not all of the ecological function right in terms of the insects and so on right
1: and um it looks to me like the eucalyptus i mean i don't know a lot about them they seem to grow in huge stands and they seem to i don't know if they seed or i'm not sure how they propagate they stay in huge clumps They don't seem to be the kind of invasive species that are like spreading across everywhere.
0: We don't read headlines of California invaded by eucalyptus. Bring out the koala bears. Right, exactly. (laughs) Nothing like uh, other, well, we have a lot of other
1: things like uh, milk thistle, uh, which is spreading like wildfire across all the fields here, um, and none of the animals will eat them. Uh, none of the grazing animals will eat them. So, oh. and they're, they're not native, but the good news is we have lots of oak trees here that nobody has cut them down <laughs> and they haven't burned up and they've been left alone. As far as I can tell, they may have cleared these pastures a long t- time ago to make pasture. Right. Cause I don't, but everything, you know, everything you see is pretty much pasture. Uh, but behind us is the, about a hundred oak trees. In wow. this beautiful little valley um, that used to have a pond there, uh, but it's all dried up now. But the oak trees look to, like they're thriving, and that's where all the deer live. And and I'm so what I'm hoping, based on my my studies, is that the oak trees provide the food, right? Because they support three hundred species of moth, right? Or or plus, um, you know,
0: one of the figures right? that I saw from Ptolemy's. On some of these oak species, it's over 500. Oh, wow. Which is astounding. It's, ast- that's it's giving amazing. me a whole new appreciation of oak trees. Yes. You
1: know, um, and we even have a few right on our property. They're not big right now. But so, so you know, a decision I would definitely make is never take those down for any reason, no. that kind of thing. And also we're making decisions based on Ptolemy's work, such as not cleaning away all the leaf litter, around yes. the oak trees, because that's where all the uh, many of the chrysalises for the, you know, form where they
0: have to, oh, and, yes, and, they have to and, over
1: and over winter. Right. So like my husband's been doing lots of cleaning and weeding and, you know, and I told him, don't, don't touch around the oak trees. Yeah things like that. So we're making those kind of choices based on what we know. But I think what I'm happy about is there seems to be a lot of support for birds here because I have never seen so many birds in my entire life (laughs) and, and different types of birds too. So when you live in the city, you'll see pigeons, you know, you'll see a few species of birds, but here, I, I can't even tell you how many there are. Um, every day I notice a different looking kind of bird and right now all the male birds are you know in full color and there's endless bird drama springtime is like a soap opera of bird drama of just everyone wants to you know mating and fighting and they're very squabbly you know and you know two females and a male and the females will squabble and the male just be waiting for them to just make up their mind (laughs) Like it's just, it's endlessly fun to watch this bird uh, excitement. And they're always out in the grass, you know, looking for little bugs and and just thousands and thousands of birds here. So that's pretty fun. So I'm thinking they're getting this. uh, I'm hoping I'd I'd love to get an expert here to really look at it, Um, but it looks like they're getting the food they need and the habitat they need here
0: already. So So then the challenge then, as you move forward with your land is to know how can I develop it without disrupting that. Yes. Yes. Because you don't want to break what's all you know, what isn't broken, so to speak. And exactly. and I have to I have to backtrack just a little bit mm-hmm. to the oak trees. There's mm-hmm. a, a wonderful book by Isabel Tree called Wilding. And mm-hmm. it's a, a about a an estate in the UK that during the Second World War, because of the blockades, Britain had to produce all of its own food. And so anything that could possibly be arable was turned into cropland. And that included on the, these great estates. And so the Knapp estate was one of those where they converted um, uh, a lot of the, like the, what would have been the great lawns and around the the main house and so on they were converted into croplands and and even after the war ended they continued to try and maintain this, and it's a huge estate to try and maintain it as a viable agricultural venture and they just found that they couldn't could not mm-hmm. even with all the modern equipment and uh, with education and so on and, and they diversified and they uh, brought in different types of crops and they diversified their dairy and they did all these these things to try and make this a viable venture. And they just, they, the, the more they spent, the dig deeper the whole um, they dug kind of thing. And so they, they stopped and they let the property go back to, they just let it do what it wanted to do. So it's a wilding project. And they've been fascinated to see the changes in the land. And one of the, one of the areas that were of deep concern was they had these very old oak trees, hundreds of years old, you know, like the, those huge magnificent oaks yeah. that are four or 500 years old that you get in the UK. And the trees were looked like they were in really bad shape. They looked like they were falling down. And so they got the oak specialist, who I think, if I'm remembering this correctly, uh, takes care of the oaks in Windsor Park. And he came, and and one of the things he was saying is, first of all, you've got to stop all the machines that are around the oak trees because that's compressing the soil mm-hmm. and the roots can't breathe. Okay, so that's one thing. And then he said, the way that oaks grow is they grow, they'll grow of up and out and make that nice picturesque tree that we all like to see in the first phase of their life. And then they kind of sit for a while and then their branches start to droop down and mm-hmm. people say, oh, I need to cut those branches because you know they're damaged, they're, uh, they're ugly, they're taking away from the tree. No, they're supporting the tree. So the mm-hmm. oak trees hollow out and they drop these branches down, Mm -hmm. and the branches act sort of like walkers and support the tree. So on any of your oaks, if you're starting to see that, leave those branches. They're important for the oak. There's a place behind, uh, uh, way in the back of our property
1: where that's happening. The, The tree has curled down and made, the parts of it are touching the ground. Yep. and when you're underneath you feel like you're in a in a clubhouse because yes, yes, it's it's kind of holding its arms down like this and there would be no reason to change that and the deer the deer hide there that's a, de- a hiding place for deer yeah um yep. and yeah there's no reason for us to change it'd be a lovely place to put a little picnic table or something but and it's yes. way in the back so it's not even where any machinery will go we're not going to ever mow there or need to or need to mow there um, so i think it's perfect the way it is. I mean, the only negative about it is that during certain types of times of the year that there are lots of ticks there because that's where the wow. deer sleep, but yes. we just don't go there at certain times of the year, right. unless we want to deal with ticks, which is not that hard, actually. I thought it would be harder, but it's not. But um, you you mentioned um, fire you know, questions and Some of those do get like that. We have to keep a defensible area. I believe it's two hundred feet or something like that in all all the way around that the house. That has to be maintained. You can't have any dead logs, no overgrowth. Okay. Everything has to be kept short. And but one thing which is interesting that I'm learning is that they do recommend planting. As long as the plants around your house are green and being, you know, watered, even a lawn, as bad as we lawns are, they they provide a, a fire break um, if it's green and watered. Okay. But definitely it's better, it's actually even better to do like stone or you know, things like that that will provide a break. So the fire can't move up the house, up to the house. And where we live, we're right above a hill. So the the area below us. Is the most important place to keep clear. Yes. But that does mean clearing it. Like we when we when we moved in, there were you know bracken up to here. And we had to get it all taken out. And yeah. and we had to, we did that in the fall, which is the worst time <laughs> uh, to do that, because what what I've learned is that's when like the um, the mason bees and different creatures use that the dead stocks oh, for okay. overwintering and so things like that. So now that I'm aware of that, um, I have other ideas for what to do with that, that kind of bracken
0: next year. So what are you, what are you going to do?
1: Well, I've come, we have, luckily we have so much space here. I'm, I'm, I'm leaving certain areas wild. Okay. So that are away from the house that are farther away um, and just letting them there's one area where everything's still really tall and, uh, but all dead from last year and the birds love it. They all sit up there and and that, so we just left that. And my husband keeps saying, do you want me to not cut that down? And I said, no, let's not, <laughs> let's leave that one. Yep. yep. Then um, another thing we think we can do is whenever we do clear stuff like that out we can actually put it in a pile somewhere but again, away from the house. So it creates, it can create a habitat and break, start to break down and make compost and all that stuff. Yes. And the other thing I just read, because I've been reading books about bees, let's see, wait, this is a good one. It's called bees. No, I'm holding it up, but I'll read it. Um, Bees An Identification and Native Plant Forage Guide, which actually, is really good for, would be good for your region, Alex. It's the Midwest, Great Lakes, and Northeast regions. Oh. Um, so okay. it's not actually, it's not actually my region. <laughs> so a lot of the native plants that they talk about are, if you, all the maps are all on
0: the East Coast. Oh, very neat. But it, a, they're really it neat. It looks like you're holding it up and the pages look very readable. So, yes. So what is it called again? It's Bees? It's
1: bees, an Identification and Native Plant Forage Guide by Heather Holm, H-O-L-M, and anyway, but what I read in here, and they have these little really simple tips about. And actually, I just noticed Douglas Tallamy put a little quote. Uh, he likes it. Oh. It would be hard. It would be hard to imagine a book more chock full of the information we need to save our native bees. <laughs> That's what he says. Anyway, but what, it has a really simple tips for uh, landowners of things you can do to first of all, identify what bees you have, because there are many species of native bees that I had no idea were here. And so, but she said, so first figure out what's living there with you. And a lot of them live in places I never thought they would live like little holes in the side of hills or in wood, or, you know, just, you don't think of bees living that way, but, but, um, but she said, like, one thing you can do is um, once you've if you realize you have mason bees, you, when you cut back, let's say fennel, I have lots of tall fennel here and it goes to seed. And then it, uh, when you cut it back, she says, leave the stalks, leave about five to six inches of stock with the tops open. Cause you know, once you cut okay. it, you have that kind of hollow stock that's yes, open. Yep, yep. And she says that sets up a nice overwintering place for oh. these bees so if you do it at the right time of year, when they're looking for places to put their larva, and I don't know if it was fall, I have to read it again, but it's um, yes. either spring. I think it's actually more spring because thats in, they wake up in the spring. That's their life cycle. They wake up in the spring and then they they need food and they need a place to start over and they lay their yeah. larva. And then they, they stuff the little cavity with food for the larva. And they spend all spring doing that. And then the adults die. And then that those babies stay in that little sheath all winter, yeah. Okay. all winter. And then they come out in the spring again, the next spring. Yeah. And then it happens again, so little things like that. So she was saying, you know, I thought cutting all of it down was bad, but in this little book, it said, no, you can, you can still trim them just don't cut them in the fall or the winter because it has babies in them. But if you trim if you trim them in the spring, then they make a they make
0: a nice house. And then you'd have to, you know, if you're setting up your veggie garden for the following year, you'd want to think about when do I disturb those stalks that I left for the mason bees? Right. You exactly. Know, at what point do I become really industrious and say, I need to get out and start working on my veggie? garden for this year Maybe right you need to wait another little bit or just leave those stalks as you're um, setting up the garden for the next year right so
1: interesting so many and there's a I mean it's endless that also like when yeah. do you if you're going to mow your fields which because we don't have grazing animals right now here yeah all our neighbors do in fact, our our neighbor offered to let all her cattle come over and eat our grass down for us so that would be the best thing, but we can't do that right now because of our dogs, but you you want to be very careful when you mow your fields because the birds will be nesting yes. at certain times of year. So if you mow in the, I think, I think if we mow in the next month or so, we would kill lots of baby birds, which we don't want to do. So we're going to mow in the you know early summer yeah, this, and things like that. These are decisions yeah. that landowners can make that will have at least,
0: like you said, at least do no harm or do less harm. Yeah. Do less harm. Do less yeah. harm. Because that, thats always such a quandary that I have with our with the back pastures, and it's not really my decision, but it still it still fusses me in terms of when do we when should the what is the ideal time to mow those those fields and where you do the least amount of harm and there's there's so much when i have uh when i've been the one mowing i'm forever stopping oh i need to move this i need to move that creature oh you know and and it's stressful because you know it's one thing to cut when you're mowing to cut hay you say okay I, i need to make hay for the horses there's a reason for it and you still want to pick a reasonable time in which to mow so that you're not you're not mowing over nests and so on but the back pastures they can't get hay equipment back there so it's Hmm. not a matter of we're cutting them to make hay they're just being cut to be kept open and you know how often do we really need to cut them is a real quandary and question that i would have how many acres do you have Fifteen acres. Yeah. 15. So, what is what is your your long term plan? What are you? Uh...
1: Well, I believe. I mean, when I first moved here, it was very much we wanted space for our dogs to be themselves. Um, they've been city dogs most of their lives, which means small okay. small yards, and every time you go out, you have to be on a leash immediately. You know, on a leash and vigilant and there are neighbors and noises and everything's, and that's how our dogs have lived. Um, And I personally have always longed for this feeling of openness. In fact, when we were looking for a place, we told our realtor, you know, no neighbors, we want no neighbors. (laughs) So we have, I mean, we have neighbors in view, like there's a wonderful woman right down the hill and we can see her whole farm actually. She has a million animals. So our first, our first plan when we bought the place was just space, so the dogs can be free and run around and not bother anyone. That was a very uh, a beginning point. (laughs) Um, And and then I was thinking, you know, it would be a wonderful place for a training facility, or we could, you know, we could do tracking and nose work because there's so much space. And I might still do some of those things, but then I just got really interested in all this habitat uh, preservation and i got very excited about it in fact i have i have it's been a long time since i've been this much of a beginner again and i love it um it yeah. it reminds me of that excitement i felt when i first discovered clicker training which was you know 25 years ago now or something uh, it it's that feeling of just i can't get enough information you know i can't I can't stop I can't stop reading these books every night and and it's just and I don't know a lot yet but it is exciting. So now I'm just thinking about exploring that. But I'm also thinking it might be nice because this is such a beautiful place for grazing animals to I was thinking long term maybe an animal combining kind of a native gardens and animal rescue. So like I don't have any need for animals to milk or make meat or you know i don't have any need right. for that but i love i love animals all you know right. i love them and so i would be a lovely place to bring animals that need homes yeah. and maybe an education center and to grace yes.
0: <laughs> right because you may need you may well need the herbivores mm-hmm. i mean you have the deer that helps but what isabel tree was finding in the wilding project is that the herbivores played an essential role in restoring the biodiversity? And there was she was basing some of her work on a project that was being done in the Netherlands, where they had allowed uh, uh, some areas again going back into the wilding, and there they needed they absolutely they wanted to bring the herbivores that would have that would have lived there pre development with people, and so they tried to go back to as close to the, what would have been the, the oryx as possible, and these other older species, uh, and in in Europe, or in England, they picked horses, cattle, I want to say pigs, sh- not sheep and goats, because they're Mediterranean, and they would mm-hmm. not have been in the UK, so I thought that was interesting. And and her just one of the things they were talking about is, you know, we think of like the, the northeast is is covered in trees. And when I was in school, I remember, you were taught that yes, when the the original European settlers arrived, there was just this vast forest, and that a squirrel could uh, would be able to go from treetop to treetrop to treetrop from the Atlantic Ocean to Ohio without touching the ground. I mean, that's a great image. But what they're beginning to think now is that all of those trees are actually the effect of human settlement. Because when humans first started moving into North America, the megafauna were, were killed off. And of course horses were killed off. So a lot of the grazing animals that would have kept the for, that would have kept more open grassland mm-hmm. were eliminated.
1: Mm-hmm.
0: Interesting. And so what what we're seeing as well this is this is the natural habitat is not necessarily it's it's the natural habitat of the last 10,000 years but it's not really necessarily the natural habitat. It's like whoa does that sort of make your head spin? Right. But what they're finding is that to really maintain the biodiversity, they need to bring the herbivores in. That was a lot of the work that Alan Savory did in Africa that, that he promotes that to help prevent um, the desertification, that it's the use of the grazing animals and but the mob grazing. So when your neighbor says, oh, can I put all the the cattle on your land? Well, you might say to her, for a week, that would be fine. Mm -hmm. Because that's what your land, you know, let them, it's like the, let the wildebeest herd come through my my 15 acres and migrate through in the spring and leave all their manure. And they can migrate back once in the fall. And my dogs can stay in the house and bark at them and be joyously (laughs) happy at all these huge creatures that are, out there that we can bark at it and they can go out and smell all the wonderful smells that were left behind, but that might be. That's a good idea. Yeah. Because we could
1: probably manage a a lack of freedom for a week or two, because I, I have put, I have put fencing in before there was no fencing, but I do have some containment now (laughs) when I need it. So, which is good, but that's a really good idea. Although right now my, my neighbor own owns a hundred acres. And she has just moved, she has a, cute, a herd of about 20 Highland cattle, Those the Scottish cattle. Oh, darling, cattle. Yes. They yes, yes. They are amazing. They are amazing. And she just moved them from their back pastures into her main area because it's spring. And she yes. just, she basically wants lawnmowers and they go all, and they're everywhere now. They're like, they come right up to her house and they're, They're just all over the place. Um, She has a huge herd of goats, which I've only seen them released in this one spot. Actually, I can see them right now. She has a huge arena area that's overgrown, completely overgrown right now. And it's filled with goats right now. And she has a million chickens and ducks and peacocks. And then she has emus She's quite a collector. She's quite a collector. She
0: has even such, uh, she such has horses. Native species. I know, right? So so it's emus.
1: Emus and horses, she's horses. And I have to say, uh I was a, a horse girl many years ago. And um the other day I went out uh to the back fence. The horses came right up to the fence to say hello. And I hadn't been near a horse in many many years. And all it took was just yeah. What? And I was like, yeah. oh, okay, I think I think I need some horses. Like I just that just that depth of Yeah. There's such a it's depth like to horses. When they
0: talk about alcoholics and they can never take a, another drink or it'll I mean I think of that in terms of horses. That yeah. all it takes is that one sniff and it's like oh. you're like, oh okay,
1: yeah. It was <laughs> yeah, it was that was it for me. But also she has this um steer, this giant steer uh, named Ferdinand, just like the story. And he okay. is a gentle giant. Um, and apparently he looks after all the baby calves and he's, oh. he, uh, he's wonderful as well. And he got out of the pasture once and came to visit our orchard. Um, I don't know how we, we haven't figured out how he managed it yet. Cause I haven't found any holes in the fence, but somehow right. we went out and there was this giant steer standing in our orchard and he stayed with us overnight and that was lovely but I'm I'm wandering around Um, but grazing animals yes but I think that idea of inviting her animals over for short periods of time if she'll lend them if she'll lend them to me right now she looks like she's right 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 he's using them now
0: (laughs) could I have us could we have a sleepover you know while while your while your grass is recovering because it's been grazed Mm -hmm. and it needs the recovery time in order to put those deep roots down and to stay healthy mm-hmm. could you could your some of your herbivores come and have a sleepover mm-hmm. it's a short sleepover
1: and, <laughs> and, and would... we have um dairy cattle to the right so there's a 300 acre dairy organic dairy farm um, and they wrote they do do they do field rotations with the the, the dairy cows so you can see them you know on saturday they're all in this field and then Two days later, they're on the next okay. the next field over and they, so that's kind of neat because that's, looks like he's doing some kind of careful
0: pasture management over there as well. So, so he might equally be interested in having the ability to rotate his cows periodically onto your fields. Yes. Because the, the cows, the trampling, and then they leave the manure behind and this is how you maintain that. Right. Uh, really healthy pasture land.
1: And it's so much better than a big nasty gas guzzling tractor or mower, which does feel so violent. I mean we we did buy a, a, um, you know a driving mower and the weed, uh weed cutters. and and thats this brings me to a really important question that I have and I'm going to keep pr- learning about is so if I let this land go back to, you know, just just didn't mess with it at all, didn't touch anything. Right,
0: what would it look like? What would it do?
1: What would it do? And it would get, comp- I'm pr- pretty sure it would be completely overgrown with non-native invaders, because that's kind of what's happening now. Um, milk okay. thistles, milk thistle, foxtails, there's this ground cover that's quite gorgeous. It's this rich ground cover with little purple flowers, which I had no idea was going to come out, and it's everywhere. And I looked it up and it's from Asia. So somebody somebody put this in years ago and it, it's doing well. It's thriving. It's competing with the other major weeds. And I love it. It's of all the weeds, it's my favorite because it's soft under the feet. It looks nice, but it's still from Asia. And it's spreading all through yes. the pasture. It's spreading everywhere. There's weird plants here like pompous grass, which I have no idea why anyone would put that in a farm, but it's also very invasive. So I, when I had the uh, landscaper come out and we looked around and I said, well, what is native? Like, is there anything here that's native at all? And he said, well, the oaks and your buckeye trees. And that was it.
0: That's a pretty short list.
1: Yes. And I mean, there there have to be some of the grasses here, maybe, but I don't know if these fields were seeded for pasture, you know, with other types of grasses. Yeah. The foxtails are a serious concern for the dogs. And I didn't want to get into a war, you know, with the land about what gets to grow and not grow. Um, but it feels like that now, because now the foxtails are coming up so fast And we were just going to keep it mowed in the areas that we use not the whole place but just the orchard is we're keeping it really short and we are going to landscape the one yard that we have but we're going to fill it with native plants so there's going to be one area of the property that in the in the height of foxtail season i can keep the dogs
0: safer not everybody is not going to know what foxtails are because i did not Until I went, you know, started traveling because they aren't in, as far as I know, they are not in my area. Oh, you're so lucky. So they are a horror. Yes, they are a horror I have not had to deal with. So foxtails. So foxtails are a grass and I'm, and they're not native
1: to this area, but they grow seed heads that look like foxtails. They look kind of furry and long. They, they're actually quite pretty when, when they're newly growing and the sun comes through them and they ripple, it, it looks beautiful. Like you you would never want to destroy that, but when it dries, those seed heads dry and they start to, when they go to seed, they scatter into the, into the wind. And those okay. little dry seed heads are like barbs, little barbs. Mm. They're like, think of a fish hook, you know, fish hooks are designed to go in, but they don't go out. Right. Because okay. once once they jab in, there's a little hook that catches in and they they can't pull out. So these little seeds are insidious. They they stick to everything and they get all in the dog's fur or um, they can inhale them. They can get in the lungs. Ooh. They and once same thing, most like if like, like a splinter hurts, a splinter goes in, but it works its way out right? Yes. These don't ever go out, they only go in. So they worm their way in, and they can cause considerable damage. So if a, if a dog inhales it, it can actually puncture the lungs. I've heard terrible things. I've even heard of grazing animals, like grazing them, and they go in the mouth, and then, you know, up and out the skin somewhere else in a terrible, and they get really infected. And dogs can actually die if you don't catch it, you know, like, if you don't, like a little one can get between the toes and then weasel yep. its way up the
0: leg. So it's quite scary. Yeah, and also hard on native wildlife. I would think so. You do not have the benefit of being taken to the vet to be yes. treated for foxtail.
1: Yes. Yeah. And even all this cattle, like no one checks the cattle every single day, you know, and... Right. So, right. but dogs seem particularly, particularly sensitive to it.
0: It sounds as though cutting that, those fields, and I know nothing because we don't have this in my area, but it sounds as though cutting the fields before the foxtails are going to seed would, at least for a couple of years, be a useful thing to do.
1: That's what we're trying this year, but it it is the faster you cut them, the faster they want to seed again. And (laughs) and I'm amazed because they look tall. You cut the seeds off and you think, good, that's it. That's going to calm them down. But they immediately produce seeds at a lower level on the plant ah, immediately. Yes. And then, so now we have very short grass still full of seed, full of seed heads. Oh. And so all we're going to, we're just trying this, but it, it feels, again, it feels like we're battling, you know, the we're every day out, every weekend we're out there like getting the foxtails. You know, it's it, it yeah, it's yeah. not how I want to relate to my land. Right. What can I kill today? You know, it's like no, and yeah. then you know, and ah. then we, but um and it makes me very sad and I get very angry because like whoever introduced these, you know, I don't know if it was brought intentionally. Foxtails seem to be that kind of. A, I should research them. They seem like the kind of infectious thing that would come on like grain imported from Europe or something that, you you know what I mean? Or it doesn't seem like anyone would plant this on purpose. I can't see why. Here's what I know. Just mowing it and trying to destroy it is the least sustainable solution. It's the least, because the more you just destroy things, (laughs) the more you try to just, it's sort of like behavior, right? The more you suppress and punish, the more it comes up somewhere else, yes. uh, it, okay. right? Or you get a worse version of that behavior in, in a different way. It, weeds are like that. Um, the more you disturb the soil, the more you, I, like I noticed that the place the foxtails are the most prevalent are around the house and the barn, which is where they mowed most often. Okay. Right? So they, they cut it back. every I can tell like in the old pictures of the property from the previous owners, I could tell that they, they weed whacked these areas, but then they let it go again. So if you, you know, you weed whack yeah. and then it comes back 10 times as strong. And finally they just gave up and said, it's too much work. And they just let it do, go to seed every year, but it's because there was nothing put in its place. There was no There was nothing planted instead. And so So it
0: is like punishment, you know, just like punishment where they talk about, uh, you don't want to use punishment, but, but the one thing that punishment does is it buys you a little bit of breathing room. So if you suppress a behavior that you have this tiny little window in which you can insert that, which you want.
1: Right. And I think this moaning idea is just like punishment as well. We could probably succeed in, maybe 80% improvement, but we'll have to continually punish the land every weekend with these gas guzzling machines over and over and over and again, forever. I mean, we'll have to do that forever because it's never going to go away. So I need a, if I want to live here for 10 more years or longer, I need a more sustainable plan. Yeah. So uh, the plan, well, the plan in the one area we have one we have a smaller backyard area that's fenced now. That plan is to tear everything out completely, and um, mul- sheet mulch it, which means we're going to suppress any new plants growing. Yes, and we're going to put in plants we want. We're going to put in native plants. We are going to put a very small grassy area just for the dogs, but just small, so we're not going to waste a ton of water but we have to put gopher wire. We have to, I mean, so this, but I'm going to start small, but once that's all finished, it'll be mulched and full of plants, uh, that the, the foxtails, you know, won't be able to grow there anymore because there's, it's going to be full of life. That's my hope. That's my hope. hope. And then that will mean we won't have to battle this area of the property anymore. It'll start to just have its own life cycle of its own plants, Yeah, yeah. Uh, nat- native flowers, and I have so many dreams. Uh, and then my next area that I want to focus on is the orchard, which is behind us. Now that is hard because it's a hill and it's got lots of complicated um, areas, but I might do sheet mulching in certain cl- spots, like in sections, which the yeah. most the most sustainable way is cardboard, and then you just smother all the plants. I learned the coolest thing is you can smother your weeds with the cardboard. You then you put a little hole in the cardboard, a little compost, and then you put like winter squash. Oh! And it grows on top of the cardboard. And so you don't have to look at ugly cardboard all year. Uh, That's right. Right. That's you right. can you can have little. You can have a garden on top of your weed suppression, which I thought was. A wonderful idea.
0: I put in a new small area veggie garden last fall mm-hmm. and the, the did the cardboard approach. I sent one of my friends off to scavenge from the dump cardboard because I didn't have enough. So he brought back this carload and we're just layering and layering and layering. And And I also enclosed, so the whole veggie garden is enclosed in chicken wire. So there's, there's a underneath all the cardboard is chicken wire, and then cardboard and cardboard, and then the manure from the horses. So we have this ready source of, of what will be good garden soil eventually. It isn't yet. It still needs some composting to do. But the cardboard just makes a great mulch, mm-hmm. great mulch. And then yes. I'll add to that, when I clean out the goatery. there'll be all the hay from the goatery that will oh, also be a weed suppressant. Another wonderful reason to have herbivores around. <laughs> yeah, I mean, really. But you course, know, you are surrounded by people who have herbivores. So they might be willing to share some of their precious manure. Who knows? But yeah, they, the herbivores really, if you're going to have gardens, the herbivores are really uh, an important part of that. Do you know the illustrator Tasha Tudor? No. Nobody does. I, I don't know why she's not better known. She's a beautiful illustrator. But in any event, the reason I bring her up is she lived in New Hampshire. And a lot of what she drew in the children's books were, were pictures from her beautiful, beautiful New Hampshire farm. And it always used to make me so frustrated. Because New Hampshire's uh where she was. is a much harder climate than where I am and they're on granite there's no topsoil and here she had these gorgeous gorgeous gardens you know they talk about looking like you have this beautiful english country garden type of look mm-hmm. and and i would look at my garden and think ah oh, it's nothing in comparison well the reason there was nothing in comparison is she had goats so that was her fertilizer mm-hmm. made all the difference in the world wow Yeah. So you may have to think of a way that you can either borrow occasionally or what, which if you had sheep, you could with your dogs, you could start learning about herding. (laughs) Oh, I can see her. I can
1: picture my Labrador, (laughs) picture my Labrador, not what is that? Those kind of dogs that don't, they fail the sheep herding test because they want to bite them. Yeah, that would be. Unfortunately, I have a dog that is not animal friendly or savvy or um, he came to me this way good example of punishment I, I the notes on his his previous owner wrote to me and said he's fine around other animals when he's on his prong collar and that that said enough that so without a prong yes. collar without that suppression his his yep. his feelings about animals are they should be far away from the property as possible so and I'm just worried he's going to get kicked in the head but we've been practicing we've been we do have you know the neighbors the animals come up to the fences so we practice you know just getting used yeah. to them and, and you have deer we have deer yeah he he does chase the deer away but i try to stop that but <laughs> he does chase the deer away um but he doesn't uh, he's learning when the uh, the cattle and you know the, the baby calves and we i tell him you know these these ones are allowed and he's learning to learning. He's just never really been around them much either, but, but that makes it difficult because if I bring it, if I get any animals right now, it means his freedoms will
0: be limited. Restricted. and Right. And you got the land so that his freedoms could be expanded. Expanded. Yes. Yeah.
1: So it's, it'll be a balance. I just don't want to live a life where I'm constantly managing him because that's, that's, that's what we used to have. And now it's just glorious. We go out. We, he's never on leash. He, he runs and he explores. And it's just wonderful. But I love it. But I wanted to say something else about weeds that I learned that was quite a revelation. Um, it's easy to get really angry at weeds. But they serve a lot of, they serve a function.
0: Yes, I am going to stop us here you're going to have to wait until next time to hear what wonderful functions weeds serve. For many of us, we're heading into spring, so we have lots of decisions to make about what to plant and how to manage the land that's under our care. My hope with these podcasts is you will be looking at your land through the lens of ecosystem good health. I know I've shifted what I'm gonna be looking for when I visit the plant nurseries this spring, As Dr. Tallamy has said, we used to choose plants because they were beautiful. In my area, I would have chosen plants that the deer don't like, which means non-natives. But now I'm going to be looking for the opposite. What do the insects and other native wildlife need? What do they eat, not what will they avoid? That's what I'm going to bring back to my garden. I've ordered the book Sarah talked about at the beginning of the podcast, Bees, an Identification and Native Plant Forage Guide. So I'll be looking at that and many other resources to guide me through the decisions that I'll be making this spring. As a lifelong gardener, I've always loved visiting nurseries. And now, thanks to the work of Dr. Doug Tallamy and many others, I'll be looking at the plants from a very different perspective. And speaking of Dr. Talamy, his new book, The Nature of Oaks, is now available. I just ordered the audio version. It seems the perfect book to listen to while I'm working outside. There's so much to learn, and there's so much to do. Remember, we can all make a difference in the climate change crisis. Together, we're learning how.